following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. It's really good to be back. It's, I was saying to Ruben, it's quite nice not popping in to do one-offs. It's quite nice to be with the community for a few weeks and get a feel of, um, of what's going on. You may not think the same, but I, I've at least appreciated it. Um, this week, we're going to finish the series that we're looking at Ephesians and look at Ephesians 3 together. So if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to go from verses 1 to the end of verse 13. So we've had this series looking particularly at the glory of the church, which, you know, I said when we were starting out, is, 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 sits kind of somewhat uncomfortably. Um, the glory of the church, um, that God can be glorified in Christ and in the church. And we've looked at um, what on earth is the church and who on earth is the church. And this, this week we're going to look at where on earth is the church. So Ephesians 3 verses 1 to the end of 13. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard the commission of God's grace that was given me for you. And how the mystery, and remember in chapter 1, there was that language about the mystery of God, which is what? To sum up all things in Christ. Remember in verse 8 of chapter 1, with all wisdom and insight he has made known to us the mystery of his will, which is... Um, according to his good pleasure, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Christ. So that's the mystery. All things set to rights through Christ. So back to Ephesians 3, sorry. Um, very distractible. Um, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, sharers in the promise of, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery and hear that repeating refrain, mystery. This plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through him in faith. I pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you, they are your glory. Last week I was chatting to Anna actually, and, um, and she mentioned that Ephesians, is, particularly Ephesians 2 and 3, are her favourite passages. And for me, it's the same. It's, it's actually this, this chapter 3 of Ephesians, this part we've just read, is a text that I just have never gotten over. I've, I've actually never gotten over it. That <laughs> the mystery for all creation, the whole cosmos, is played out in the church. 
that the church reveals not just to our political leaders, not just to our neighbours and our friends and, and, and the, the countries that surround us, but to the cosmos that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how the church is, by the church being the church, the cosmos learns that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul's saying here. This mystery, to sum up everything in Christ, is now displayed in the ability of the church to live together in peace. That's the heart of this thing. That's the heart of it. So where on earth is the church? We forget that Paul's writing to communities of maybe 20, 30 people. Um, insignificant numbers under the Roman Empire. Tiny little pockets of people who are the extreme weirdos that the Roman Empire will come and crush if they get the opportunity. Paul writes to them and says, the mystery of the whole cosmos is figured out in this group of 20 or 30 people. You are the hope of the world in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking questions about the church. Can you help us this morning to hear your spirit speaking the word of truth to us? That we as a people, your church, your body, might become what you have made us. Amen. Um. On this, on this question of, of, of the church and, and where is the church, being this reconciled community of the different made one in Christ that displays to the whole cosmos God's plan for, for everything. I think in New Zealand we're facing some really interesting times for the church. Um, on many fronts, but one particularly in Auckland, if you think about the projected demographics of Auckland, um, you may not know, but, but there's been huge change happening in Auckland. I'm sure you're aware of it. You will have experienced it yourselves in your own homes, your own neighbourhoods. Um, the growth of migration in New Zealand and in Auckland particularly has radically changed the landscape. Currently we're around somewhere, in terms of European people, the, the, the percentage is somewhere around of, of 60% or so. Projected going forward, the change in the demographic will be about a third will be European, so around 33% in Auckland will be European, down from what was 90% not long ago. 30% uh, will be Asian, 30% will be Māori and Pacifica, and then 10% will be other. Um, the growth of the Asian community in Auckland has been 550% from the mid-1980s. So incredible changes are happening in our neighbourhood in, in, in Auckland. And New Zealand historically has had a real problem with the stranger, with those who are different than Europeans. Through the process of colonisation, and this was happening around the globe, but it certainly happened at a moment in time when New Zealand was being formed as a nation. And what would happen is that the stranger was, um, in the words of one person, um, that there was this stranger was laid to rest in a state of suspended extinction behind the thickest of stone walls. That's what New Zealand historically did in regards to the stranger. So native schools were formed in which Māori children were taken from their families and educated in the ways and civilization towards European ways. They were taken away from their families into institutions. Um, Asian migrants were, I mean, 
It is so awful if you read the history in regards to Asian migrants and the treatment of New Zealand Europeans towards Chinese. I can't honestly repeat it. It's so awful from politicians, from church leaders. The history is just awful. But one example is that in a time when migration was encouraged to New Zealand in the 1800s, Asian migrants were charged equivalent of what is $18,000 to come to New Zealand. Um, it was called a poll tax and it was inflicted upon Chinese migrants only. And there was allowed one person per 200 tons of import. One Chinese person. Uh, I, I honestly can't express what was said. It is so awful, historically. Pacifica peoples were um, drawn to New Zealand at a time when there was a labour shortage. And they were told, you don't need visas. Come to New Zealand, we have a labour shortage, we have factories for you to work in, we need you. But then when the economy took a downturn and there was not so much need for labour, then the government set in place that you must have visas. And the process became known as the Dawn Raids. Um, and Dawn Raids are not a rap group. It's a historical process in which there was the removal of Pacifica peoples without visas. People um, were locked away in the 1800s in what they called lunatic asylums. Um, they've been slowly being shut down across New Zealand from Oakley to uh, right around the country have been slowly shut down. But originally, they were lunatic asylums. And people who didn't fit into society were put into lunatic asylums. There might be nothing actually psychologically wrong with them, but they didn't fit in. So again, behind the thickest of stone walls, they were purified from community. They were taken away and put into lunatic asylums, and most of them never, ever came out. All sorts was done to them in regards to use of drugs. Um, some of them were invasive treatments through their brains. Um, unbelievable history, if you read it. Um, there was deaf children were taken away at the age of three to what they called deaf and dumb institutes. At the age of three years old, their families, it was an edict from the government in 1904, you must take your deaf children to school, to special deaf and dumb schools. And the children were dropped off at three, deaf children not knowing what on earth is happening. And they were dropped off at these institutes. And this happened globally, but it happened at a moment in time when New Zealand was forming as a nation. This quest for a purified society that laid the stranger to rest in a suspended state of extinction behind the thickest of stone walls. So the goal was either that the stranger is to corrected to become like me, or they're hidden or banished or stopped from being around us. This movement towards purified society. What happened in New Zealand and, and globally again in the 1960s particularly was a massive change. What the New Zealand historian James Balich calls coming in and coming out. The coming in of influences from overseas, so as the rise of television, the realisation, you know, they would say of the Vietnam War, it was the first war we saw, you know? Um, we saw it on TV, it happened before our eyes. So the coming in of migration and migrants, um, the coming out of diversity of Māori and, and women's voices saying, hey, we're part of this community too. So this coming in and coming out happening in the 60s, and it's in that process that we're in at the moment, this process of coming in and coming out, what they call globalisation, the change that's happening globally around the world, and particularly in New Zealand, with huge changes in regards to diversity. In the new setting that we're in, it is the growth and growth and growth of the stranger. 
for all of us. We don't live in the same houses. You know, my parents would live in the same kind of homes for a long period of time. We're on the move, all of us. So it's this kind of setting in which your neighbor is your closest stranger. You know, there's that kind of setting happening around us. Incredible changes. Um, the growth and growth of the stranger. That the, the stranger has come out and shown themselves, and they're not going to go away. There is this unexcludability of the stranger in contemporary culture. And for many, this has been the celebration of multiculturalism, and it's a good thing. Please hear me, don't, don't misunderstand me. Multiculturalism is a great thing for New Zealand. And, but many have understood what Paul's talking about in this passage that we've looked at this morning as a call to multiculturalism. And it's true, it is. But the problem with the language sometimes of multiculturalism is it's the celebration of togetherness without taking seriously the other, the person who's different. We celebrate our togetherness. Remember last week we talked about consumer spaces as empty spaces. You know, the malls have the kind of diversity that churches can only dream of. This wonderful kaleidoscopic community of difference in one place. And the reason why they're able to have this kaleidoscopic community of difference is because we all hang up our differences at the door. We take off our identity, we hang it up at the door, and enter as just simply consumers. So these spaces are empty because they're empty of our particular being, our, our otherness, our difference, our strangeness of one from another. And so what can arise in the setting of the celebration of multiculturalism alone can be a shallow kind of togetherness where we don't encounter the otherness of the other person, their difference from us, a kind of shallowness that, that celebrates togetherness, but doesn't take seriously the questions of power and privilege that are at work in community. Does that make sense? See, privilege, someone said to me one time, I had a friend that I was studying with, he did critical psychology, and he heard this great quote, and it's, it's again one that's got under my skin and, and has never left me, he said, power and privilege work like the wind at your back when you're on a bike. You have no idea you've got it until you're made to turn around and bike into the wind. And so when those, primarily in the New Zealand setting who are European, are those with power and privilege primarily to determine what kind of community we're going to be. When we use the language of multiculturalism, but don't take seriously the historical issues of injustice that have been inflicted on many people, then we have these kinds of empty spaces we talked about last week that celebrate togetherness but won't take seriously the power issues. What does it mean to have a diverse community? For, for me, at the moment, as, as I've mentioned and Ruben highlighted today, we're involved with the deaf community. But what does it mean to be a hearing person who's set in place laws, the history is to set in place laws to take away children and to place them in a school where they were taught you cannot sign, only monkeys sign. I have friends who were told by pastors, God does not hear your prayers when you sign. That's what happened. So if I come into a space together and we say, yes, we're together, um, and all I need is to carry on the same and you just be, well, let's get an interpreter in so that the hearing world can be interpreted for you. That doesn't change the kinds of issues that are at stake in this place. It, it doesn't shift the issues. It doesn't bring about the kind of reconciliation the gospel calls us toward. 
Bell Hooks, the American critical theorist, says this process is called eating the other. In consumerism, you make the other a kind of um, object through which you can consume. Uh, and she talks about being, a, it, it's kind of a, um, it's a little bit of the exotic to add some spice to the dull dish of mainstream culture, is her language. So what that looks like is that we roll out um, the ethnic other, people who are different from us, to do performances, to show our togetherness. Um, and that's a good thing, I'm not, I'm not uh, but the point would be that, that many European Pākehā will go overseas and they will uh, sing Polkarikariana, they will butcher Polkarikariana, um, or a haka, to kind of assert their New Zealandness. But when they return home, they will be the shrillest critics of anything to do with Māori issues of justice. We eat the other. The other is there to add and spice up the mainstream dull dish, says Bell Hooks. So this call to rich variety, I think, is deeper than shallow senses of multiculturalism. Either we have to rework the term multiculturalism to mean that a, a, a sense of depth together, or we have to figure out a new word, I think. Paul demands something so much more than simply togetherness. Because togetherness is based on the assumption of inclusion. We create communities of inclusion. And in communities of inclusion, you don't have to do anything. You just have to be there, and you're included. Um, so people with disabilities who are in wheelchairs, you just shift a couple of chairs and they're included. But they don't belong. There's a difference between inclusion and belonging. There's a big difference between inclusion and belonging. And Paul picks up that in this passage, quite radically, quite radically. See, he says that the mystery in former generations in verse 5 this mystery was not made known to humankind. And yet if you remember in chapter 2 last week, he was quoting from Isaiah to make his point. Isaiah talked about the day when Yahweh would come and redeem a community for his glory. So how on earth can Paul now be saying that the former generations knew nothing when he was using Isaiah to make his point? Well, it's interesting if you read on. Um, it was not made known to humankind as it was, has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles, and in the English it doesn't come through as clearly. In Greek, what happens is Paul piles up words with this little prefix called syn, which means together. So in English we have the words like synergy, which means um, ergos in Greek is work, and syn together, working together, synergy. So in the Greek that we're looking at here, it says, that is the Gentiles have become fellow heirs. And then the next one is fellow members of the same body and fellow sharers. They're all using this little word sun in the promise that is in Christ Jesus. So the, what, what commentators notice is that it seems that, that what had developed in Jewish mindset was that yes, Yahweh will come back and redeem the community, make us one. And what will happen is that the Gentiles will become kind of Jewish. 
We have, a, we have a way in which Gentile people will become part of this new community, and that was that they will become like us. And Paul writes and says, no, no, no. They will be fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow sharers as Gentiles. The stranger will be present, the other will be present in their otherness and their difference. And God will make us one people. It is not that you get to come and now, great, you're here. You can be like me. But that we will all change to become more like Christ. And that makes demands on all of us to be supple, to be malleable, open to change by the Spirit, to become the new community that God's called us towards. This, I think, is the thing that's gotten under my skin because it is as we learn to be that kind of community that the powers and principalities are desperately unsettled. Powers and principalities on earth and in heaven. Whilst we remain um, dominated by one form of culture in our churches, the powers and principalities just fold their arms, they look at the church and think, there's nothing to worry about there. There's, nothing, there's no problems coming from the church. There's nothing to worry about there. But as we learn to form new community through which Christ works our difference for his glory, then there's something desperately unsettling for all powers and principalities. Jesus is Lord is displayed through the church's ability to reconcile our otherness into one body so that there are, as Paul said last week, no longer strangers or aliens, but one new community. Not set by the terms of one dominant group, but set on the terms of the gospel, a reconciled people. We need to move from inclusion to belonging in our communities. Belonging means that when you aren't here, you're missed. And when you are, you change this place. You change our time, our space together. I have a friend who works with people with disabilities, and I may have mentioned uh, something of it before. But his, his comment and his research anecdotal would be that 95% of people with disabilities in churches have never been invited home for lunch. 95%. They're included, but it's a thin inclusion. For them, they don't belong. There's a difference between including people and people belonging. Um, my boss, uh, Charles Hewlett, um, he's had two children with uh, profound intellectual disabilities. And um, one of the things, I, uh, I remember he came when I was pastoring a church, and on our church, um, I'm feeling a bit awkward about this, we didn't have a ramp anywhere. Um, he didn't have, we didn't have a wheelchair ramp. There was no access for a wheelchair. And he simply said to us, you know, I go to churches, I look around, and I know that if you don't have a ramp, that community have never, ever heard the perspective of a person in a wheelchair. Ever. Ever. See, belonging means that we must ask questions about privilege and about power to let the gospel change us deeply to become something new.
Who on earth is the church? Well, it's these communities that have learnt to reconcile through our differences, not to make us into a bland homogeneity, but to be together under Christ in one community. And while we remain separated from another, one, from one another, and whilst 10 o'clock on the Sunday morning can be the most segregated hour of our week, then the powers and the principalities fold their arms and think, there's nothing to worry about here. In our setting that I'm in currently uh, at Titterangi Baptist Church, we have significant questions that we're asking in regards to the deaf community. Um, we currently have wonderful deaf community, and, and you know, they're, they're friends of mine, and I know that they would say they love it. They love being part of the community. And we have terrific interpreters that are part of ensuring that there's access for deaf people. But we have to ask, and we are asking, what meaning is there for deaf people when we sing songs? Uh, deaf people do not sing. They don't hear music. It just has no meaning. It's like watching a mime. There is no meaning for that community. It, it, it's, we have to learn to think through what does it mean not just to be together as we interpret a hearing service for the deaf, but what does it mean to be together as deaf and hearing? that deaf forms of worship are going to change how we are together. We don't know what that looks like yet. But that's what the gospel calls us towards, and not with hearing people like me saying, oh, I know, I know the answer, let me tell you the answer on behalf of hearing people. But actually to say to the deaf community, you lead this space for us, and we don't hold veto rights, you tell us. Lead it, please. to make known the mystery and the wisdom of God to the, in its rich variety to the powers and the principalities. Um, I can remember a really rich experience of this for me that again stuck with me was when I was working at Laidlaw College. And the tsunami, if you remember, that went through Samoa at, that, uh, at the time. And at Laidlaw there was a number of um, Pacifica students and Samoan students um, who were studying there. And it just wreaked havoc across them and their communities, their families, their relatives. Many lost immediate family in, in this. And it was a devastating effect upon that community. And uh, the Samoan leaders, many of whom, of course, are, are, are studying full-time at Laidlaw. And they're also senior pastors and senior leaders in their denominations. I mean, they're balancing all of this. They don't have nice times where they get to box the study season with the ministry season. It just all is in together all at once. And so the, we said to the community, uh, to the Samoan leaders, could you please lead us um, in this? We, we want to stand together, but we want you to lead it. Because the, the danger is, you know, a palangi says, oh, I know what that looks like. You know, let me get a sophisticated answer that suits me. But instead to say, no, you lead it. You, you, please, we want to be with you. And what happened was that the Samoan leaders led it amazingly, incredibly, and it will stick with me for, forever. Um, in our community gathering at Laidlaw, singing in Samoan, um, When Peace Like a River, uh, by Horatio Stafford, you know, that song which he wrote when he'd lost his children and his, and his wife. Uh, and, he, and we sang When Peace Like a River, except we sung it in Samoan, and it is Elele. Uh, and this incredibly, th that experience for me, gave me insight about hope and about faith and about what it means to be a Christian that I just did not have and still am trying to learn. 
that it's in our rich variety together that Christ is displayed to the powers and the principalities. That's what the gospel calls us towards. To be not communities of inclusion, but communities of belonging together under Christ. Then I think the cosmos will know the wise purposes God has had from the beginning. Inclusion is easy and belonging is way harder. Many more problems, much more difficult. But it's way more interesting too. Let's pray. Loving God, you, by your divine plan, have called us into one body to be your people in all our rich variety who will display your wisdom to the world. We ask that you please shape your church to be the church. Let us not cower from the call to be your people. A community of difference and otherness who know what it means to be reconciled by the blood of Christ. We ask this for our sake, for the sake of the world, and for the sake of the gospel. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.